there's a reason that typically running, say, five to seven days per week yields better performance than running two to three days per week. Granted, not every runner can do that, but the more you run, the more specifically you're adapting to the neuromuscular and cardiorespiratory demands of the sport. If you're an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated, and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you're in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, me, Whitney Hines. and welcome to episode four of Runner Clicks, the Passionate Runner podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Hines. I'm a lifelong runner, a certified running coach, and founder of themotherrunners.com, a resource for moms who run. And today's interview is with certified running coach, Laura Norris. Laura is an amazing wealth of knowledge when it comes to all things running. In fact, she has served as a mentor to me and a co-coach for my athletes at the Mother Runners. And if there were a game show about running and the science of running, Laura would win hands down. It's kind of amazing how she's always able to pull out stats and data and research findings seemingly out of thin air. And today we are going to talk about what happens to our bodies when we run and how we can use science to make us faster. So more about Laura. Laura Norris is an RRCA and VDOT certified running coach, a writer, a micro business owner, a marathoner, a mom, and a graduate student in exercise science. She coaches adult recreational runners from beginners to Boston qualifiers to 50K runners. She's qualified twice for Boston herself and holds a half marathon PR of 134. Her area of expertise includes physiology, marathon training, and long-term sustainability in sport. She currently lives in the Boulder area of Colorado with her husband, toddler daughter, and two rescue dogs. And beyond running, she enjoys hiking, skiing, kayaking, research, and craft beer. Now, before we have our uninterrupted conversation with Laura Norris and get totally geeked out on the science of running, here is a quick word from our sponsor, Runner Click Pro. If you are an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated, and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you are in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, Whitney Hines. Laura, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so happy to be connecting with you and seeing you and hearing from you. And I can't wait to talk about all things science and running. Awesome. I mean, thank you so much for having me, Whitney. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here with you today talking. And so when I describe you to people, I say that you know like pretty much every stat, every data, like all the research when it comes to running. And I'm just wondering, have you always been interested in science or like how did you become interested in specifically the science of running? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny because in college, I was not in STEM. I was an English major in college, but prior to then, I loved science, loved math. My favorite classes in like high school were like 
organic chemistry and all that stuff. Um, and honestly, I didn't go into science in college because I was intimidated by it and I didn't know what to exactly do with it. I would say probably track back from my childhood interest. I always, I was a child of two engineers, always kind of had that experiment with things, see how things work mindset with a soft spot for like the life sciences. So go through college, didn't really take any classes in that, but I started working as a fitness instructor in college. And over time, as I was getting my master's in humanities and doing that, I found myself in my free time reading more and more about running because I was enjoying it. I really liked, again, teaching the fitness classes and then kind of natural curiosity and my like past propensity for the life science side of things just kind of naturally led to delving into the science more and it just kind of fostered very naturally for me from there. So, okay. You got interested when you were starting, when you were a beginner runner. Yes. I'm curious what happens physiologically when someone starts running and they're beginning with like a run walk and then gradually increasing their run intervals and the days of the number of days they run a week. Like what is happening inside the body when that begins? So, I mean, there's a lot that happens inside the human body when you introduce a running program. Most of the adaptations that come from endurance training are metabolic. But when you're starting out as a runner, you're also going to have some mechanical adaptations, which means that your musculoskeletal system is going to undergo a series of changes that improves your tendon elasticity, improves your bone strength, makes your muscles stronger, even though endurance training doesn't promote hypertrophy of the muscle fibers, it still can give you stronger muscles. But that's why you always have to start slow, start with run walk is because your musculoskeletal system takes time to adapt. And it often takes more time to adapt than your aerobic system. So that's why sometimes new runners can really get injured easily or even runners returning from injury Mm -hmm. need to use run walk is because your lungs and your legs are going to have a disconnect. But your musculoskeletal system adapts. It just takes time. And then when we look at it from a kind of metabolic standpoint, and all run, you know, this is kind of one thing that it starts with beginner and then it just continues as you run. You go through, I'll use the scientific terms and then explain them mitochondrial biogenesis and then angiogenesis. And those both sound really crazy, but we look at the word genesis, that means creation of. So with mitochondrial biogenesis, you're having an increase in both the size and number of your mitochondria, which probably everyone kind of remembers from high school biology is the powerhouse of the cell. It essentially means you are having cellular level adaptations that help you produce more energy. And then when we look at angiogenesis, those are the capillaries that take blood down to those those little muscle cells. And those increase in number and density as you train. So essentially, once you start running very early on, your body undergoes these cellular level changes to just make you more efficient at taking oxygen and making it into energy in your muscles. And that's often why, you know, those adaptations can happen within a few months. And that's why usually beginners will see this huge curve of being able to go from, you know, run one minute, walk one minute for 20 minutes to covering pretty significant distances within a few months. So there are diminishing returns, though. It's not like your system progresses at the same rate. Once you start getting fitter, then it levels off. Yeah, it does. Like you still, every runner, including pretty advanced runners, always wants to revisit a base building phase just to make sure 
that they have those desired metabolic adaptations in place and to just maximize them as much as possible. But you do hit a point where, say, your VO2 max has capped. You know, maybe you're not getting these huge rapid leaps in fitness and it becomes more about maintaining what you have, especially as you age. But yeah, it's like, you know, you start out running and you see these huge jumps. And then the more fit you get, the more it is these tiny jumps, just because that's kind of how fitness works. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately. So do the mitochondria and capillaries go away? So say you're laid off or you just fall off the running train, do they disappear and then you have to start back from square one? No, I mean, they're not going to ever completely disappear. And we don't fully know like how long adaptations like those can last, but they can last a long time. You know, there's been even, there was a recent article I want, like it's within the past few years, I want to say in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, but I have to double check that, that found that like, that you need only a low dose of endurance training to maintain fitness in those periods. So I want to say they found it was just like 20 minutes, three times a week will maintain those adaptations until you can resume training again. Now, if you're completely off due to injury, you'll see loss of cardiovascular and neuromuscular fitness, like your blood volume will decrease, your tendons and everything will get weaker, but it's not like you're going back to square one unless you're just completely off for years. That's great to hear. Because lots of people think that, you know, it takes so long to gain your fitness and then it's so easy to lose it. So it's not that way. It's not like, I mean, you, I think the biggest thing that becomes lost that people think of is you do lose that musculoskeletal fitness and that neuromuscular fitness much more quickly than say metabolic and cardio respiratory adaptations. So a lot of people will lose, you know, the strength and elasticity of their tendons. And that's why sometimes the people come back too soon after a hiatus, they get injured again, but you're not going to completely detrain and go back to step one in terms of the more cardiopulmonary and metabolic adaptations. Laura, can you talk about the many different systems that the body has and how it uses these different systems to pull from sources of energy? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of very, very basically, you have aerobic energy pathways and anaerobic energy pathways. If we look at the anaerobic, there's ATP PC, which is like very short, short bursts. Most distance runners don't use it. That's more like power lifters and very, very short sprinters using that thing. And it's always also though important to think of it. They're all spectrum. You're never singling out the single energy pathway though. Then we have anaerobic glycolysis which is a fancy way of saying that your body is breaking down these carbohydrates into energy without using oxygen. And so this is stuff that like, if you're going all out anaerobic, you'd be sprinting. If you take like a 1500 meter runner, half of their energy pathway contribution comes from anaerobic glycolysis. When you look at a long distance runner, it's a little bit less, but you still train it. And Glycolysis also then comes into play with aerobic things. If you have oxygen available, you enter something called the Krebs cycle, and that turns carbohydrates into energy using oxygen. And it's much more efficient. It lasts, it gives you energy for longer. Anaerobic glycolysis taps out pretty quickly. That's why you can't hold a very hard effort for more than a few minutes. And when we're looking at the aerobic ones, 
the sources you're using for energy are a combination of fatty acids and carbohydrates. There will be a little bit of contribution of protein. And if you were to say, do a very hard marathon without taking in any fuel, your body will start to break down your muscles to take protein to turn into energy. We don't want that. That's not great. But there is a small contribution of protein, but most of it is carbs and fat. And when you're doing something like, say, even a 5K, most of their energy production is using carbs and fat plus oxygen. Your intensity will play in how much carbs and fat. So if you're under 60% VO2 max, you'll be using a lot of fatty acids. But once you begin to tip over 60 to 70%, you do use more carbohydrates, which is why carbohydrates are so important for runners because most of our training occurs above 60% VO2 max. Okay. That was really helpful. And so is it accurate that your glycogen stores are really only good for about two hours? So if you're running a marathon and chances are you're going to be running above that fat burning area that you, you need to, to stock those glycogen stores and then continue to take fuel throughout. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause you'll have both liver and muscle glycogen stores coming into play. You do not want to fully deplete your liver glycogen stores or your muscle ones. If you depleted them fully, you would be having a very, very bad day, like medically bad day, mm-hmm. you know? So those stores really do have only about 90 minutes to two hours before they go out. And once they go out, your body resorts to fatty acid oxidization, which is a less efficient process. And that's like when people hit the wall in the marathon and they just cannot go any faster. It's because you just can't go faster when your body's trying to use only fatty acids and to conserve carbohydrates. So that's why you want to eat before a marathon to replace liver glycogen lost overnight and to make sure that your muscle glycogen stores are topped off. And then you want to consume carbohydrates during the marathon to make sure you have readily available blood glucose that your body does spare some of those glycogen stores so you don't bonk. And again, you know, there's going to be some fatty acid oxidization going on because it's all spectrum, but it's not going to be a majority of your like energy contribution. Okay. So the different types of running that we do, threshold runs, VO2 max intervals, just slow, long runs, they all help us train these systems to become more efficient. So how does that work? How do these different runs help us build these separate systems so that we become a way more efficient runner? Because I mean, that, that is the goal is to use as little energy as possible so that we can run faster and longer. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll kind of begin at the lowest intensity and work up. So as a long distance runner, a majority of your training should be easy runs, which are like 70% VO2 max ish. And what you're getting there to make your body more efficient is you will, with time, see a higher percentage of fatty acid oxidization and some glycogen sparing occur at those intensities as you train. You know, we don't want to talk about like becoming a better fat burner because that's not necessarily correlated with performance, but this is just your body learning to conserve carbohydrate at low intensities. At that level, also, you make more aerobic enzymes, which is just going to help you use more oxygen for energy along the way. Easy runs are really the bread and butter of endurance training. We want that really robust aerobic system because the higher your aerobic capacity, the faster you can run until you start going anaerobic. When we get to lactate threshold, that is where some glycolysis, anaerobic glycolysis begins occurring. 
and kind of training that system raises the ceiling of how long you can do more anaerobic glycolysis. Oh man, it's messy because everyone debates what's actually going on there. But one theory is like <laughs> you want to have be able to have glyco- anaerobic glycolysis contributing to energy for as long as you can before hydrogen ions and inorganic phosphates accumulate and cause you fatigue. It's still kind of debated. There's like all this crazy stuff out there on what is actually happening at your lactate threshold slash anaerobic threshold that I will admit I don't fully understand the whole debate, so I won't go into it. But we can just basically assume that's when you start using anaerobic energy systems and you become more efficient at staying more aerobic um, as you raise your lactate threshold. And then VO2 max usually takes place with a heavy amount of anaerobic glycolysis occurring. And again, it's just kind of looking at how well your body can run that system while clearing the metabolic byproducts. You know, we're kind of training our body to just use energy efficiently and to clear away those metabolic waste products efficiently. Um, We all know what it feels like to have those hydrogen ions build up or that going lactic feeling where you just burn and crash. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not a good feeling. You're working so hard to move your legs and they just will not go. Yeah. Let's see how this plays into a running schedule. So how does this affect having this scientific knowledge? How does this affect the approach to coming up with a program to say train for a marathon or a half marathon? Yeah. So I think it first always helps to take a step back and look at what are the actual contributions of my energy systems for my desired distance? If you are doing anything below like a 5k or longer, you're going to be predominantly aerobic. Once you hit the marathon is almost 100% aerobic energy, very little anaerobic going on. So that kind of informs how a majority of the training should be. A majority of the training should maximize your aerobic systems. And that's where easy runs come in. You know, you always hear, Oh, you know, if we're going to go with Dr. Seiler's periodization, 80% of your runs approximately should be easy, sometimes even more depending on the runner in the training phase, sometimes slightly less if you follow certain methods where of marathon training where maybe you have a little bit more moderate zone in there. But still, a majority of your training is aerobic to make you efficient at that because that's what you're going to have to do on race day at any distance is essentially have a strong aerobic system so you can have a longer time to exhaustion at a given intensity. That said, you still, even when you're doing a marathon, you will want to do anaerobic training. So that's where we get VO2 max training, intervals, tempo runs, because just doing that and raising your lactate threshold means that you can have a higher, a faster pace below your anaerobic threshold. Those runs, though, are, you know, that 20% or less of your week, um, simply because A, it's not the primary energy system we want to be working. B, the recovery is longer and harder from those. And you would have to sacrifice a lot of volume to do a higher amount of those throughout your week. So that's kind of where you get, you know, if you go very old school, you can get the like interval workout and tempo run per week. If you go into some newer methodologies, it's still predominantly aerobic and you have one hard workout a week that hits the systems desired for your race, which means maybe intervals further out from a marathon and more threshold runs closer to your marathon, plus a lot of marathon pace running. 
So how does the training look with a 5k or below versus longer distance? Do you do more quality workouts and less 80% or less easy running? Or how does that look? Yeah, so usually what you'll see a difference of with the 5k is you usually will stay still generally pretty close to that 80 20 distribution. But not always, you'll probably have slightly more higher intensity, you'll definitely make interval workouts a bigger priority. And you'll be doing less volume when you're doing 5k training. So 5k is generally it is higher intensity, lower volume, with a greater emphasis on like, workouts that recruit, recruit your fast twitch muscles, because the 5k, I always forget the exact number, but something like 10 to 15% anaerobic. So you do more anaerobic work and more fast twitch muscle recruitment work to support a fast 5k, but you can't neglect that endurance system still. So you talk a lot about specificity of training. Can you tell us what that is and how that um, works into your coaching? Yeah, absolutely. So specificity is both broad and specific. Broadly, specificity of training means that if you're a runner and you're training for a long distance running event, again, we're talking long distances are like 3000 meters and over, you have you should run for most of your training as much as is possible for reducing your injury risk. There's a reason that typically running say 5 to 7 days per week yields better performance than running two to three days per week. You know, granted, not every runner can do that. But the more you run, the more specifically you're adapting to the neuromuscular and cardiorespiratory demands of the sport. When you then look at more specific specificity, as redundant as that sounds, that means training for the unique metabolic and muscular demands of your event. So again, with the marathon, that's going to be lots of easy runs, higher volume with shorter distances, more intervals. But that said, you never want to be so specific that you neglect becoming an overall well-developed runner. So a good example of that is when you're really far out from your marathon, you probably still want to be doing some hard intervals to work on your anaerobic system, even if you're not going to use that entirely in the race. Or, you know, on the contrary, 5k runners can probably still really benefit from going out and doing 10 to 14 mile long run on the weekend to make sure they have really robustly developed endurance. So it's being a well-rounded runner and basically like every type of workout is good for any distance that you're going for. It's just the amount of each type of workout. Yeah. The amount. And I would say the the timing, you know, I, I tend to not have any of my runners do very highly anaerobic work within six to eight weeks before their marathon but we do more further out. So it's all kind of periodization of when am I doing what workouts based on my strengths, my weaknesses, and my goals. And so if somebody's just starting out running, you said that it's better for like the neuromuscular development to do more running sessions a week. Like if I'm a new runner and I want to um, work up to 15 to 20 miles a week, is it better for me to elongate um, my runs or to add in an extra day and why? Yeah, I would first base that off of like previous injury profile. I mean, it's hard to say injury profile with a new runner, but generally like it can kind of help to first begin with like two or three runs a week. And if you're doing okay with that and you've given yourself at least six to eight weeks, try introducing another run first before you go super long on other days, just simply because 
frequency will help develop your aerobic systems more and it spreads out the stress more. I think we can see a lot of trouble when you say have someone who's a new runner and they're running three days a week and all of a sudden they're trying to get up to 25 miles a week or 30 miles a week and every day is a big long session. Um, you'll get more bang for your buck yeah. doing multiple sessions and usually it's less stress on the body given adequate energy intake. Let's go back a little bit when you were talking about heart rate and how it correlates with different types of runs, like easy runs would be like, what'd you say? Probably in that 60 to 70% zone of your max heart rate. Yeah. I think like typically you can kind of correlate heart rate percentage with VO2 max. It's not a perfect correlation. So I think depending on who you talk to, easy runs will be under 70% of max heart rate or under 70 70 to 79%, really depending on who you're talking to. But yeah, generally in that 70s range or slower. Yeah. There are a lot of different people have a lot of different takes on heart rate zones and how many they are, how many are there and where they lie. I'm curious about how you feel that correlates with rate of perceived effort, because I know, you know, most people go by the heart rate that they have on their watches and they are not very accurate. And so a lot of times we tell runners to go by their RPE. How do you feel like that correlates with heart rates? And, you know, what's your advice for runners when, when they're going out for say like a tempo run, um, how to keep it comfortably hard? Yeah. For a tempo run, if you were to keep it comfortably hard, like heart rate generally can correspond with ventilatory rate and like measuring your ventilatory rate. If you learn the skill of like assessing that is more reliable than heart rate, I think, especially if you're using an optical wrist-based monitor. So you mean how hard you're breathing? Yeah, how hard you're breathing. So kind of a good way can be how comfortably can I talk and how long do I feel like I could sustain this effort for? So, you know, if we're looking at um, tempo runs, think of breathing hard enough where maybe you could say like a short phrase, like this pace feels good, but that's it. So you're not conversation all day, but you're also not like (gasps) gasping like you would in an interval workout. You know, for a lot of runners, I find actually thinks helps to think how long could I sustain this pace? And with tempo pace, you should realistically feel like you could sustain it for an hour if you were racing. For some people, that's 10K. For some people, that's 15K. For, you know, higher up people, that's close to half marathon. But kind of judging how well can I talk, how heavy is my breathing is very helpful. Okay. Thank you. When somebody is going out for a tempo run and they misjudge how hard they're supposed to be running and they're supposed to go out for 20 minutes, comfortably hard, but they're dying at the end of it, what was the goal physiologically? And then what happened when you decided to, or you made the mistake of going out too hard? Is the workout lost? I mean, did you gain anything? You know, I would say you still gain something, but you're going to pay for it in terms of like long-term development and short-term recovery. So what happens with the tempo run is again, we're kind of working at that, right at that fine line of like hitting, starting to go anaerobic and accumulating more lactate in our blood. Now, lactate is our friend. It's not our foe. Our bodies are actually kind of good at using it to produce more energy. So you want to train at that zone where your body can clear the lactate just enough and turn it into energy with a, and clear the byproducts. So that's why you're at that comfortably hard place. That's where it happens. And you're teaching your body to do that for longer. 
When you go too hard, you essentially then have too much anaerobic contribution and you'll start accumulating just too much lactate in your systems to actually clear efficiently and to recycle its energy efficiently. But mostly we're worried about you're just using too much anaerobic energy contribution there. I honestly think the biggest risk that comes with that is one, again, you're not quite getting the desired adaptations, but two, you're putting huge stress on your body by going too fast and that's going to increase your injury risk and your overreaching risk, um, which overreaching is like early overtraining that is comes from multiple factors, but one of them can be doing your workouts too hard. So it's not, oh, this workout was an entire bust, but it's more so this is not productive training long-term. How do you keep your athletes who are kind of overachievers and go to the well with every workout? How do you keep them from believing that that is not going to help them in the long term and buying into the fact that, you know, they still need to leave something in the tank at the end of a workout? That's a great question because it's one that I think every coach struggles with, no matter how experienced, because you will have athletes who want to go into the well, who want to prove their fitness in every workout rather than build their fitness with workout. So I find often quantifying it as like, you want to be able to say, hold this tempo pace, like do it for 20 minutes, but you want to feel like you could keep going for an hour and having honest conversations around those all the time being like, how did this effort actually feel? The second I find that is really helpful is not reading into pace on those workouts. You know, we can kind of say, oh, this is your threshold pace based on your recent races. But when a lot of athletes are training, they probably have a lot of fatigue in their legs during marathon training. And you have to recognize that will slow a workout down. So sometimes I find just giving them effort and not giving them, you know, maybe giving them a pace range, but making it a, a range and like making sure they know they won't hit their normal paces when they're in the depths of marathon training. I find that can really help also. But a lot of the times I just use the, I think it's like a, the term in like the strength and condition community is reps in reserve. And that's a term I use a lot with my athletes. It's like, I want you to finish this interval workout feeling like you could do two more reps. And if they say, oh, I didn't, then I'm like, let's try and calibrate next time. And that's, I found has worked really, really well is to frame it with this is how much I want you to have in reserve when you're done, because then they feel like they're checking a box rather than thinking oh, faster is better. Mm-hmm. Do you ever take the watch away from your athletes? No, like I never take it away because honestly, from a coaching side, it kind of helps to look at that data. Mm-hmm. You can tell a lot about, you know, a lot of times if an athlete is overreaching and say a tempo run, you'll see them start out really fast and then kind of tank later on. And it helps as a coach yeah. to see that feedback. But usually what I'll tell some athletes is like, have your watch, but set it just to show you like maybe how many total minutes you're running and not show you pace. So it's still recording that data, but you're not looking at that data during. It can help kind of like create a positive feedback cycle during the workout because you're not like looking at these numbers and being like, oh my gosh, I need to pick up or slow down. Like you're just focusing on your body and working on that skill of pacing and that refines that skill for the future. All of these different types of workouts that we're talking about play into improving somebody's running economy. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about what that is? And I mean, a little bit more about how we can go about improving one's running economy. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it's first and foremost important to think about running economy as this kind of multifaceted thing. So essentially running economy 
how efficiently you use the oxygen you consume. It kind of correlates to VO2 max, but it's independent. So like you can have someone with a really high VO2 max and a poor running economy, and they'll be outperformed by someone with a lower VO2 max, but a higher running economy. Especially when you get into really long distances, some people actually have surprisingly quote unquote low running economies compared, or sorry, low VO2 maxes compared to their running economy. So it's how efficiently are you using oxygen? Things that factor into that, you have biomechanical factors, you have neuromuscular factors, and you have metabolic factors. So again, you know, running economy development, that first and foremost comes back to having a really robust aerobic capacity, that, that base building that we talk about with runners. Spend time running lots of miles easy and revisit that every season so that your body just has the cellular adaptations to just efficiently convert oxygen into energy. Um, again, it's all that mitochondrial density, angiogenesis, higher stroke volume that we're looking at. So there's also like cardiovascular development comes in there. When we're looking at like the biomechanical, that is just essentially like how much force can be generated by your muscles and tendons. So again, that gets developed through hard workouts. Um, but for a lot of runners also, and a lot of the evidence points to this in the exercise science community, this is where things like plyometrics, deliberate strength mm-hmm. training can come into play is they just make your muscles able to generate more force so that you're more biomechanically efficient. Obviously, there's a like point where it becomes counterproductive. You don't want to go out and become a bodybuilder. But mm-hmm. also, if you're endurance training, you're not going to become a bodybuilder. There's something called the endur- uh, interference effect that will essentially like keep massive muscle hypertrophy from happening. So it's really not something runners have to worry about. Strength training is good for your running economy in general. And then when we're looking at like the neuromuscular, it's just how well your brain and your muscles can talk to run fast smoothly. So think of like when you're a new runner you've never done an interval workout and you're straining to hit those hard, you know, to do those hard sessions over time, your form becomes more refined and more efficient and you can run fast with less loss of energy, you know, less energy loss to poor movements. Um, So it's kind of this whole multifaceted thing, but it especially correlates, I'd say to things like high mileage relative to the runner doing strides, hill sprints, and strength training and then taking care of your body with good nutrition and properly scaled carbohydrate intake to your exercising levels. Yeah, I was going to ask what other extras outside of just running we could be doing. Would drills be coming into that as well? Mobility exercises? Drills, definitely. Mobility is one of those things. Like if you're strength training properly and you're doing drills, your mobility is taken care of. Oh, great. Because strength training depends on your body's ability to move through a full range of motion with strength. So a lot of runners, if they're like, oh, I have tight hips, blah, 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 doing squats and deadlifts and moving your body through a full range of motion in your hips is going to yield higher dividends than doing the Myrtle routine. That's not to bash the Myrtle routine. It's great. It's just saying strength training is mobility work. Okay. That's awesome. So, okay. Often as a coach, we have these athletes that come to us who essentially want to rush their fitness. Like they have, they want to be Q in four months 
and their fitness is not there. How do you train those types of athletes? Like you get asked a lot as a coach, like, well, why can't I be training at, you know, why can't I train and run my race, my goal race pace in my workouts? I would love your scientific answer for why <laughs> you can't rush the fitness and train your body when it's not ready yet to run that pace. Yeah, absolutely. You always have to train where your fitness is, not where you want your fitness to be. Because quite simply, if you're trying to train your fitness where you want it to be and you're not there yet, you're going to be working all the wrong systems when you do workouts. So if you're like, I want to run a marathon at an eight minute mile and your real fitness is actually where an eight minute mile is probably a threshold run, you're going to just be taxing your body way too much in those marathon pace workouts and you're not going to recover. You're going to overreach. You might even get injured. So as when you work from where your fitness is, you work on developing your energy systems in a way that will yield long-term development. You might not see it in two months, but you'll see it in six months, a year. So I think it's always important to be think about what systems am I working and is what I'm looking at actually conducive to building those systems. And then just to think of the consequences of overreaching, like if you overreach in training, you're doing just all your workouts too hard, you're not recovering well, and then you go past the point of overreaching into overtraining, overtraining is really difficult to get out of. You can get out of it, but you essentially have to scale back significantly, let your body recover over months. And, in, you know, that could mean like maybe if you train smart and sustainably, you might not get that BQ in four months, but you might get it in a year. If you try to go for it in four months, overtrain, it's going to be years until you actually reach that goal because of how you're going to have to dig yourself out of a hole. Oh, wow. Years. I mean, that's how like I would think about it because overtraining just depending on how much damage you do to your body is just really difficult to get out of overtraining. You have to scale your training back significantly. I wouldn't say start from scratch, but you have to let your body reestablish a hormonal homeostasis because there's mm-hmm. a whole cascade of effects of metabolic changes, yeah. of damage to musculoskeletal system, of damage to your endocrine system that isn't an easy fix. And what about the runners who are putting in the work and they just feel like they're not getting faster, like their turnover just isn't there? As a coach, what do you look at to improve like that mind-body connection, the neuromuscular fitness in order to, you know, they, they have the aerobic base, but they just can't get their legs to move like they want to? Yeah, I would in that situation, I would look at recovery and energy intake first before adding things to training. Because a lot of times in our modern life, people are busy, sleep may be compromised, and poor sleep diminishes economy, it diminishes performance. So I would look, how are you sleeping? You know, are we actually pushing you too hard in training? Are you recovering well? And then how is your energy intake? Because runners are really prone to unintentional low energy availability. You know, there are people who have eating disorders and that needs to be addressed very seriously. But for a lot of runners, the high energy demands coupled with how sometimes their appetite can be suppressed, they just might not be getting enough energy without realizing it. And if you're not going to have, if you don't have enough energy to produce those muscle muscle contractions, you're going to have that kind of slow, I can't get my turnover going anymore. So that's always kind of look at things outside of the training first before adding in 
extra stuff to training. That's excellent advice. How would someone be able to determine that um, outside of I have a whoop? So it tells me like every morning how much I've recovered. But you know, just I know making sure they they feel well, you know, in front of and on the backside of their runs, like how they sleep seven to eight hours a night or more. Um, what other things should they be looking at? Yeah, so I would say they should look at, you know, heart rate variability is a useful metric, but it also helps to look at subjective things like, am I dreading my runs? Have I noticed things like my appetite is seriously suppressed, libido seriously suppressed, kind of grumpy, or more irritable than usual, like those cues in your body are going to tell you that you're not recovering properly. Because if you aren't recovering properly, it's going to cascade into how you feel throughout the rest of the day. And then also it can just help athletes to maybe take a moment, assess their food intake. You could work with a registered dietitian or a certified sports nutritionist, but you can also just kind of look at the ISSN standards of, you know, I should be taking in six grams of carbs per kilogram of body weight and like, you know, 1.8 grams of protein or whatever, you know, find out what you should be doing, consult a professional And then just look at your food log, you know, log your food for a day, a few days and look at it like it can be surprising how many carbohydrates a marathoner needs. And they can very quickly, you know, assess their food and be like, wow, I was not getting enough carbohydrates. No wonder I don't feel great in my training. There's, you know, huge theories out there that it's not so much overtraining as it is under eating. Yeah. What are some other maybe common pitfalls that you see athletes making that end up hurting their performance? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say like, you know, kind of as we talked, the temptation to do workouts faster, but a big temptation I see is the automatic equation that more mileage is better. And we were just talking about like how higher mileage is great. You want to have a robust aerobic base, but everyone has this personal point of diminishing returns and it's a shifting point as you get fitter. But that's to say, like, if you're currently doing 30 miles a week, you don't want to jump to 60 miles a week. The temptation is very much there to be like, oh, I just need to run a ton more. But you really just actually want to run a little bit more and let your body be able to recover and adapt. So that's the biggest thing I'd see is that. And then also when you're thinking of weekly mileage, it's important to think about it not in terms of miles, but in terms of time on your feet. You know, you might look and see one of your runner friends doing 70 miles a week and you're like, oh, wow, they're performing so well. They're doing seven miles a week. But maybe for them, 70 miles a week is only like, I mean, I'm always bad at the quick math, but maybe their easy runs are really only 75 to 90 minutes a day. As for you, if you were to try to hit that 70 mile a week, you'd be out there running two hours every day. And that's where it becomes counterproductive is the purpose of a run is correlated to its duration. And once you begin to go over 75 to 90 minutes, it's not an easy run. It's a longer run. And you don't want to do that every day. So think about your mileage in terms of your time on your feet and let the mileage come as a result of bringing your time on your feet up to an appropriate level and working there. I think that's a huge pitfall is people are like, oh, I'm going to run 11 miles every day and that's going to get me fit. But if that's two hours for you every day or hour 45, it's not going to get you fit. It's going to over time backfire. I love the looking at it 
at how much time it's going to take you versus miles. I mean, just from a planning standpoint, we're all busy, you know, so oh, that yeah. way you know, okay, well, I, this is only, I just have to block off 75 minutes to get this done. And it also keeps you from getting caught up in that mileage trap as mm-hmm. well. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that way then like you're definitely keeping your easy run easy because sometimes in like the runner brain, you're like, oh, I have eight miles on the schedule today, but I'm running a little late or I have an early meeting. So I'm going to just push a little to get those eight miles. And as if you're like, I have 75 minutes, you're like, I'm just going to cruise along for those 75 minutes. I always tell my athletes, if you're short on time, shorten the run and keep it the same intensity. Don't try to squeeze in the mileage. Yeah, because the the body doesn't know how many miles you're running. It just no. knows how long you've been on your feet and working. Exactly. You know, and there are some athletes I train completely by time because that works for them. And when I work with other athletes, if we're training by miles, I'm still always turning their miles into time when prescribing workouts. Okay. So with that said, if someone is just getting started and they have a get fit goal, what is the magic time? or is there a magic time that someone should shoot for? I think it was running coach Jack Daniel said that like 30 minutes should be like your minimum. That's when you start seeing the angiogenesis and, Mm -hmm. you know, mitochondria density improving. Is that it? Is it 30 minutes that you should shoot for? Yeah. I would say you like make that your goal when you're just starting out, like you'll probably begin shorter or with like walk run intervals over those 30 minutes. But for a beginner, it's a good goal to say over the next couple months, I want to build up to being able to do 30 minutes, three or four times a week continuously, because also 30 minutes is just, that's where you get a lot of great health benefits from running. Like I think sometimes we as runners Mm -hmm. can forget the health benefits, but that's where you're going to improve your insulin sensitivity. That's where you're going to, you know, just make your heart healthier and stronger. That's where you're going to improve lung health. So that's always a great goal for beginner runners, both from a performance perspective, but then also just from a general health and wellness perspective. Ah, so many benefits of running. Laura, it's been great chatting with you. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you really wanted to talk about? No, not that I can think of. I feel like that was a really robust, productive discussion. <laughs> it, I mean, I feel like I went to school. I learned a lot. I hope the listeners have learned a lot too. So if they want to connect with you or learn more about you and the science of running, where can they do that? Yeah, I have my website. I publish usually right, right now based on the demands of school and stuff once per week. So that's lauranorrisrunning.com. My Instagram handle is at lauranorrisrunning. I am not very active in posting, but I'm semi-active on stories right now. Just again, demands of life. On my website, though, and through Instagram, there's my email. So, you know, I always try to respond to emails. I always try to respond to Instagram DMs, but sometimes Instagram like throws those in the spam box. So usually email is more reliable. So those are great ways to reach out. I'm not active on Twitter. I tried, but I'm just not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a Twitter person either. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. And yeah, I look forward to having you on the show again, talking. I mean, there's so much we could we could have talked about. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Laura. And thank you all for listening to The Passionate Runner. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are all available at runnerclick.com slash podcast. 
Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying this content and getting value from the episodes, please leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash TPR. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Thank you.